Hello and welcome to UK Life Abroad. Everyone knows what Borscht is, however most of its long history is unknown. In this week's episode, we take a look at Ukraine's goal to reclaim its national dish from its Soviet past. We also discuss the results of our Instagram poll against Zelensky's own national poll held during the recent local elections. This and more on Zakhrodonia Ukrainsi, the podcast for all things Ukrainian. So recently, Yevhen Klopatenko, a Kiev celebrity chef who was previously on Ukrainian's version of MasterChef, has been spearheading uh, a campaign to make borscht listed on the UNESCO list for intangible cultural heritage. Alexa, do you want to expand about this list? So this list includes various famous elements of cultural heritage from around the world. So for example... Uh, Georgian winemaking, Persian carpet weaving, or Turkish coffee. And currently, Ukraine has three items on the list. So they have Petrikivsky Rospis, which is, you know, the typical Ukrainian house decorations on the outside of, like, the rooster, the flowers, the vegetables. Uh, they have Cossack songs from the Dnipropetrovsk region. So, for example, Oy Nohori Tai Zhenci Zhenut, and then Kosiv-style painted ceramics from Hutsulshina. So, you know, like they're pretty iconic Ukrainian things, like so Cossacks, different types of artwork. So, like, it's a pretty interesting list to, like, read down. Yeah, I think that's a pretty cool initiative, given that they're trying to undo all of the... Russian appropriation? Yeah. Of, Russification? Yeah, I guess it's both of those together. Um, and all the appropriation of Ukrainian cultural things into Russian cultural things. That they're trying to undo all that because, especially during the Soviet Union, when their goal was largely to, to kind of combine everything into one united, in a sense... Um, Nationality. Yeah, you know, they're, they're trying to make themselves more independent, not just politically independent, but also culturally independent. Um, yeah, and I think this initiative is good because it builds off Ukraine's recent successes of, like, the Kiev, not Kiev campaign and... Um, you know, it shows that Ukraine's finally becoming proactive, like, in foreign affairs. Like, they're not just responding to other countries' initiatives. Like, they're, you know, progressing Ukraine's own interests. So, um, this kind of brings us to where all this propaganda uh, came from. And it all started in 1939, when we specifically focus on Borscht. Uh, in 1939, the book of Tasty and Healthy Food was released. Um, and in this book, they had aimed to... Well, it was kind of like a uniting cookbook of all the um, dishes in the USSR, and uh, Bosch was included in that as well. And it aims to take all the different parts of, uh, or dishes from all the different parts of the USSR at the time, and kind of un- uh, put them all into one cookbook and say, you know, this is um, this is what the USSR is culturally. And um, the Guardian dubbed it as uh, Russia's kitchen bible because apparently it was. Uh, a popular book it sold, I think it was over 8 million copies it sold. And it's, um, you know, it includes very uh, famous and um, traditional dishes that um, people just cook a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so this this book is kind of responsible for creating the stereotypical, like, Eastern European cuisine. So if you travel anywhere, like, across the former Soviet Union and even, like, into like the Eastern Bloc, like you'll find like a lot of canteen style restaurants will still kind of follow what this book recommends. So it, it recommends like a four course meal. So course one is like a soup. 
course two is like a type of meat course three is like the side dish to the meat of like potato hrachka whatever and then like your third course your fourth course is a dessert and then salad is an optional course isn't like that uh similar like format to svetvacher kind of No, because it's more like like because Shot Vatchet is twelve dishes. Okay, let's not go that far. <laughs> <laughs> But it's more like it's how like if you sit down to eat like a meal, like that's like the stereotype it's implanted. So I know like when my uncle, because he's like he served in the Ukrainian army, like for lunch, that's how you'd have lunch. Like you'd have a soup, you'd have a meat, you'd have like something to go with the meat, and then like a salad and a dessert. I think it's because the whole thing of like everyone, like you're expected when you're going to eat, you're gonna. be eating to be filled and sort of like overfilled so you can keep working rather than just have like a quick snack does it all come out at once or is it like the soup and then bring out the meat no, no so you not. grab everything in one go oh so load up your plate yeah. drizzle yeah, the like borscht on top tra- like load up your tray and this sort it kind of came down to the idea because at the time um soviet dietitians said that snacking was bad and it would discourage people from working so Like they encourage people to eat a lot during their meals, so then they'd be ready like to work until dinner. Well, they're kind of right, and so like like dentists today, they pretty much say that you should avoid snacking because you're constantly like giving bacteria like a chance to feed, rather than having like a break in between meals, and it gives you a chance like for your teeth to heal in between meals. They didn't even think about that, so it's kind of right, but like <laughs> <laughs> right. So the um. The Financial Times had a interesting description of this book, and they wrote it opens with a double-page spread of a lavishly laid table, replete with caviar, champagne, and overflowing fruit bowls, more Liberace than Lenin. Photographs of food production, egg farming, apple harvesting, fruit canning, and recipes for dishes such as aubergine caviar, beef stroganoff, Russian salad, nut pudding, and apple pie are scattered through its 400 pages. The overall impression is one of abundance. And I think that last sentence is the, um, was basically the goal of that book, was to show that the USSR at that point was kind of turning into this lavish country where they had all this abundance of food and people were able to, you know, in- engage in fine dining. But it was really... It was a shallow uh, view of what the USSR was actually like, given all of the issues that they were facing behind the scenes. And not only because of this book, but also the, you know, people like trying to escape from the Soviet Union and even before that, the Russian Empire, like borscht and other national dishes have gone global and now can be found in almost any country where like there's a Ukrainian community or any other like national community from the Soviet Union. So whilst borscht is seen as an international meal, um, it still should be recognized as a Ukrainian dish. And this is even backed up by Russian food experts. So, for example, William Pochlemkin states, uh, one, could be, one could understand and forgive foreigners for calling borscht or varannike Russian national dishes. But when it turns out that they gain this information from Soviet cookbooks or restaurant menus, one is embarrassed for our authors, chefs, who popularize the national cuisines of our peoples with such ignorance. And he wrote that in the context of our peoples as people from the Soviet Union. Because didn't you say that, oh, didn't I read that that um, celebrity chef had done all this research about the origins of borscht and he actually found out that it was like one and a half thousand years old or something like that? Yeah, so Kono Plenko, I think Andrea was saying before we started recording. Klopotenko. Klopotenko. Um, said that he could trace the history of borscht in Ukraine. Like, yeah, like 1,500 years. 
which is pretty crazy for like a soup to be that old. Well, I'd say soup is one of the oldest dishes. Just chuck some stuff in water, you're good to go. Before, this is like pretty much before um, like the Russian Empire almost. I'm pretty sure no country's 1,500 years old. I'd say mod- like countries that still exist today. Yeah. Um, but going back to the point of um, this fake image, um, there was this idea that like you said, Andre, people that had people had to eat, you know, these large meals so they could work more. And this book contained all these lavish dishes, but the Russian population existed mostly on a diet that was dull and monotonous. Um, and this was because of massive food shortages in the country at the time. So I know Alexi was saying before that there is a dish in there that talks about uh, cooking sturgeon, and eventually it got to the point where they had to stop using sturgeon because it was the population of sturgeon was uh, running low. So once that you know, implication comes into play, yes, everyone else in the uh, world is reading this book thinking, oh, look at all this, uh, these fancy foods that people in the USSR are eating, but the reality was that they weren't actually able to access most of these foods. Well, and it got even worse than that. Like Towards the end of the Soviet Union, you couldn't even... like probably make half of these basic dishes because of like the chronic food sh- food shortage. considering that like borscht didn't even have like a specific meat label to just had generic meat uh, as its <laughs> ingredient it doesn't really give any hope to like how much food was available really because like as long as you can care of any sort of meat then it, it's fine but pigs ears you're good to go <laughs> <laughs> you don't even need meat at all oh yeah i wouldn't be surprised if that's where it came from. We're out of meat, guys. <laughs> Meatless butters. <laughs> it's the newest version of now. <laughs> but uh, final thing, Andre, why would you say that this is an important uh, quest, we could say, that Ukraine has undertaken, um, not just within Ukraine, but also globally as well? So I think this sets a good example, not just for Ukraine, but for other countries around the world into preserving their her- heritage and culture and traditions. And it sets a reminder that this is your heritage, your traditions, and I think it's better to keep this all in mind rather than having it lost to history. Last week, Ukraine held its local elections, and the results are quite interesting. So President Zelensky's party suffered biggest defeats. But not only that, but the election itself had Ukraine's lowest ever turnout of 36.88%. For example, the last local elections held five years ago had a turnout of over 46.62%. Um, As always, Western Ukraine had the highest level of participation at over 40%, while the East and South had the lowest level of uh, participation at 30%. So Zelensky went into the election expecting big victories. However, his party failed to win any uh, mayoral races with the incumbents winning re-election quite comfortably or heading into a second round uh, runoff uh, well ahead of their candidates but not even that but Zelensky's party in general usually ended in third or fourth place and might not even make it into Lviv's city council which is you know quite embarrassing yeah considering how they ran into the uh 
parliamentary elections and like ga- uh, gathered almost 300 seats or, or so. Yeah, um, yeah, so they went from winning over 50% of the vote to, you know, 10 to 15% now in the local elections. Which is quite a significant drop. And I think like the main reason why is because over this uh, year or so that they've been in parliament, um, they've slowly moved away from being like pro-reform and like pro, uh, pro-Western to a more neutral or even like pushing towards a pro-Russian stance now and against reforms and stuff. So it's kind of put a sour taste in a lot of people's mouth with this party. Well, I think that this... Um doesn't look good for him going into the next presidential elec- election. Well, not even that, just even in parliament. Like, he's suffered a huge defeat. Like, will he be able to keep his party together? I know, but even like, okay, he keeps his party. T- if he can't keep his party together, he is still president. I think the only thing that will, well, this will all end essentially, Zelensky will end um, once he leaves office. So, if he's in government and his party loses, you know, all of its, um, or majority of its seats in the parliament, yes, it's going to be more difficult for him, but he he can still try and recover from that. But once he loses the election, the presidential election, well, that's pretty much it for him. Yeah. Um, And I think, Andre, I think you looked into how, like, why people didn't vote this time around. Yeah. So, there were quite a lot of reasons why a lot of people didn't vote. So, uh, 20% 20% had poor health, 19% had residential registration issues that they needed to deal with, 15% had errands to run on that day, which is quite surprising, 14% were undecided, 12% were not interested in politics, which is always, um, it's always bad to have like quite a large percentage not be interested, but it's quite understandable that a lot of people aren't. But you got to remember, Andre, we're like, because we live in Australia where vo- voting's compulsory, like, yeah. to an extent, everyone's sort of engaged here in, some in elections. sort of politics, yeah. And then the last 10% uh, were afraid of coming out because of the pandemic. But they even, uh, in this poll, they even asked, uh, would they have voted if it was online? And this changed uh, quite, a, like, quite a significant amount. So 46% said that they would vote online or from home. 13% were 50-50 about voting from home. 14% were perhaps uh, willing to vote. 25 did not change their mind to vote. So it's quite a big jump from like to have 46 people willing to vote. 46%. Yeah, 46% willing to vote from home. I don't know. What do you guys think about online voting? Because like personally, I think like I'm kind of against online voting. Just because, like, it's easier to hack. You can't really hack a piece of paper. Well, there's, like, a lot of conferences, like, uh, tech conferences in America where, or, like, hacker conferences where they come in and they do, like, a lot of hacking just, like, to try and figure out where they can build up security. And I think one of the boosts is usually the election, uh, on, like, election, online election voting. Even if it's in, like, the building, it's quite easy to hack from what a lot of hackers say and so it doesn't really give a lot of hope to online voting in the near future at least uh yeah and i know from um the u.s elections where they use not just online voting but they also use electronic voting machines um Yes, they are more prone to hacking, but there's also just random glitches that can occur. I mean, look what happened when it was the Iowa caucus and they were supposed to put their 
um, caucus numbers into the app and the app crashed and essentially just ruined the entire first uh, primary state of this election cycle. So unreliability like that can really cause issues. And if you are voting online and you end up with glitches where votes aren't even going through because of certain glitches, well, I guess if you look at it from the perspective of, oh, it's just an accident, well, yeah, okay, people's votes aren't going through by accident. That's terrible. But I think that that sets a bad precedent because people can look at that and say, oh, you know, maybe we can use these glitches to our advantage. And that goes to what I know Eustenis talked about in the past about voter suppression. And I think that's the big issue. Yeah, and not even that. Like, if it's online, like, say you have a power card, because, what is it, a couple of years ago, Russia hacked Ukraine's power grid and shut down power for like a third of the country. They could do the same thing and shut down the elections. And if it was online, like, you can't do anything. So, um, one thing that I also wanted to include was that... um, 36% 36% of the citizens who did not come to the polls said that they were disappointed with the situation in the country, while 32% harbored hope for a better future. So it, I don't think it really like presents itself as a very optimistic future. Did you say that people that didn't turn up were feeling those things? Yeah, so 36%. So why didn't they show up? If they were That's feeling- typical Ukrainian Because they were disappointed though. with the situation, so they're probably dissatisfied with the people who are running really and they were just it's kind of like a vote for no or like a vote but that's typical ukrainian mentality where like everyone hates politicians <laughs> it's kind of the, it's kind of like the same in america where like people like if they don't agree with their candidate um they just say that they won't vote it's like sorry for the primaries right um it's like oh i don't want to vote for biden so i won't I can't vote for Biden, so I, I won't vote for anyone else. A protest vote kind of thing. Yeah, something like that. Now, this brings us to the other thing that made last Sunday significant in Ukraine, and that President Zelensky also held his unofficial opinion poll of the country. So, the poll itself was quite controversial because there's no legal basis for it. And in response... Yeah, so the OSCE for Democratic Institution and Human Rights said that there was undue political advantage for Sluha Norodo, Zelensky's national party. So it gave political advantage for Sluha Norodo. First of all, it was funded by them, so it kind of blurred the state-slash-party lines on who who was this from or who was it for. It was also presenting their administration policy initiative to see what kind of view people would have on these topics when, they, when, it, when it would be brought up by them in parliament. So... It didn't really represent the state, but rather it represented the party initiative, really. So in line with um, Zelensky's poll that he sent out to the Ukrainian people, we also put a poll up on our Instagram page. So thank you to all of our listeners and social media followers for participating in that. And uh, we thought we'd, um, we'd go through our results and see how they compared with the preliminary official results from Zelensky's poll. So in line with his, we asked five questions um, revolving around corruption, creating a free trade zone in Donbass, um, reducing the number of MPs, legalizing weed and implementing the Budapest Memorandum. Um, So with our first question, which was, do you support the idea of a life sentence for large scale corruption? In Ukraine, almost 83% of voters um, voted yes and almost 14% voted no but with our poll 79% voted yes and 21% voted no I'd say those results are 
pretty similar. Yeah, they're quite close, actually. Yeah, I think that's like a universal um, opinion that most people would have that if you are corrupt officials in the government, yes, you should face harsh penalties because you are abusing uh, a position that you have been elected into by the people and basically throwing it in their face. Yeah, and like I think it comes down to having strong institutions that prevent corruption. So like we have ICAC in New South Wales, which I think is quite good. But then federally, we don't have an anti-corruption body, which is a big political issue at the moment in Australia. Question number two asks, do you support the idea of establishing a free economic zone in the Donetsk and Luhansk regions? In Ukraine, 46.7% voted yes and 46.48% voted no. So it was a pretty even split. Um, But interestingly, with our poll, 38% voted yes and 62% voted no. Now, I don't know about you, but like... Like I didn't, I didn't quite understand the implications of a free trade zone in the bus, so I feel like I might have voted wrong. But uh. that's why I didn't vote on this one. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's kind of funny because like most of these questions aren't something you'd ask in an like in a referendum style thing anyway. Like they're quite kind of broad discussion topics, and it was weird because Zelensky said when he announced the poll that these were the kind of questions you'd discuss with your taxi driver around the kitchen table. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure you don't talk high-level economics with your taxi driver or even around the dinner table. (laughs) Oh, you've been busy today? Oh, how do you feel about free trade? (laughs) (laughs) But um, in general, like, I know in Australia, I'm pretty sure we don't have any free trade zones because the government focuses on free trade deals with countries, not just specifically benefiting one region, but the country as a whole. I think the split in Ukraine kind of splits along the whole uh, east and west, I think. Well, th- this is what I kind of see because we don't have any breakdown of the preliminary results so far. But I think oh, why a lot of people voted no is because uh, some people understood what this meant for Ukraine. And I think this came from a lot of educated uh, voters. And so I, and they understood like the risk that would come with it and they thought it wasn't worthwhile while the other side who were unsure about what a free trade agreement would result in uh, sorry a free trade zone would result in in Donbass um, I think they voted for for it because they didn't understand the full effects of it and one thing that I do want to mention is that during this opinion poll quite a lot of people didn't understand what some of the questions uh, were being asked so I think this is one of questions that a lot of people weren't actually understanding i think that shows in the almost 50 50 split because no one could really make up their mind uh the next question question number three asked do you support decreasing the number of mps to 300 now in ukraine um just under 90 percent voted yes and seven percent voted no um and with our poll 36 percent voted yes and 64 percent voted no so what do you think that says about um the difference in um the number of mps like we have compared to ukraine i think the complete opposite like numbers that we got where most people were saying they do not want to re- uh, reduce the mps but everyone in well majority of people in ukraine are close to 90 percent are saying yes reduce the number of MPs, I think that goes to uh, public opinion about MPs in government. And Alexa, before we were recording, I know you were mentioning something about that. Yeah, so a lot of people in Ukraine just see the whole idea of being an MP as just a corrupt institution. So that that's why they're pretty against it. While like out in the diaspora, like 
the more representation you have, the more like representative parliament is. So you don't want to be reducing your representation. So like I know like in the UK, their House of Commons has like over 600 MPs and they have like an almost equivalent population of, to Ukraine. Yeah, but I think like the other thing why they'd reduce it is because of like the just like in your fra- uh, in your face corruption because you're like you around this time you usually have a lot of like voter buying or like um some sort of like work that is happening in quotation marks so so most of the time some MPs uh, some local MPs that are trying to be re-elected they go to like make a road like repave this one section of road and like look I'm doing work I've made this I've repaved this one road in the middle of this village right and everyone votes for him but then like within the year or so that road breaks down to what it was before and it it's not much better anyway and then there's even the case where some uh MPs or sorry uh are running and they just blatantly say if you vote for me I'll give you two bags of sugar or like a bag of corn uh, if you vote for me. But I don't think reducing the number of MPs would solve that problem. To be honest, I think it'd make it worse because there's less seats to go around. Yeah, and how would you decide which MPs would be cut? Like, how do you decide? How do you guarantee that you're not going to be leaving the corrupt ones? Yeah, and, like, yeah, the more MPs, the better, like, representation you have because Ukraine's, what, 42 million people officially. Like, what? what's free? Like, dividing 300 amongst you know 42 million people you'll have a one mp representing a lot more people than one currently does how many does australia have we have 76 seats in the senate so 12 for each state and two for each territory um and then we have 151 seats in the house of reps and we have a population of 25 million people the other thing about reducing numbers is that it kind of concentrates the influence into those seats that remain so trying to get out a corrupt official is going to be much harder because the whoever is doing this corruption whoever is influencing politicians there's less politicians for them to influence so they they can essentially buy you know one politician and concentrate their focus on that particular person so it actually reduces the possibility of a actual reform party coming to power because they're going to have to go up against politicians that are backed by you know massive massive contributions from you know oligarchs and all these other uh, people working behind the scenes so if they do want to actually try and get some kind of change you know you need to have the ability to actually fight against this money that exists in politics in ukraine that and the other thing like it will lower like the amount of people to like implement constitutional change because at the moment you need 300 MPs to change Ukraine's constitution which is two-thirds of 450 so if you lower it to 300 you'll need an even smaller amount to change and like a lot of uh, a lot of villages and towns and uh, quite small cities they lose a lot of their representation as well and so I think it loses their their voting right really the next question was, do you support legalising cannabis for medical purposes? The official results were 65% yes and 29.5% no. And then with our poll, it was 94% yes and and 6% no. Now, I think um, like ours was 100% yes until, what, a few, de- uh, a few like, hours yeah, before the end? Towards the very end, a few people voted no. But I think that also comes to... Like a lot of the like a lot of countries in the West are going through the phase of legalizing cannabis 
for either medical use or like in some parts of America and I think Canada now like for general use so like it's probably coming yes I think it's they're moving towards that trend of having like cannabis as a sort of mainstream thing or like it's a known thing to happen really or like to be used so the other thing is that uh, there's been a lot of misinformation about um, cannabis over the years, particularly in places like Ukraine where education isn't the best. It's going to be much more difficult to, you know, um, correct that misinformation. So I, I'm 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 a little I'm not too surprised that it is you know 64. I'm actually a little shocked that it's um, actually even a majority. I thought that would come out as majority against, but... Yeah, me go. too. I thought that this would have been one of the more controversial ones that people would have come out against, but it shows you that, you know, even in Ukraine, like, people support legalising cannabis. The last poll question was, do you support the right of Ukraine to use the security assurances provided by the Budapest Memorandum for restoring its sovereignty and territorial integrity? Now, 74% in Ukraine voted yes and 17% voted no. And on our Instagram poll, 83% voted yes and 17% voted no. So, Andre, you're an expert on the Budapest Memorandum. Would you like to elaborate? Yeah, sure. So, in the Budapest Memorandum, it was signed by Russia, UK, US, Ukraine, Belarus and Kazakhstan. And it was to give up their nuclear uh, nuclear arsenal to Russia and to provide security assurance for their uh, borders. So, the two points that I want to refer to, uh, which are the most relevant in this case, is the first one being respect these countries' independence and sovereignty in the existing borders, and the second one, refrain from the threat or the use of force against these countries. So, obviously, Russia's um, broken that treaty. Broken that treaty already, but um, this isn't. This isn't like NATO where they are forced to uh, take measures against it, but they, um, but it gives the signatories justification if they take action, but it does not force anyone to act in their interests. Really. Also, Nathan, it's like Casas Belli in Europa. <laughs> oh my God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it gives them the option to support Ukraine and its territory and sovereignty, but it doesn't force them to... Do anything. Do anything, really. So, would you say that that would be a misleading question then, the way Zelensky's written it, since the treaty doesn't actually obligate the other parties to respond? Yeah, because I think he's kind of put like a twist in it to say that like the US, the UK and Russia have an obligation to respect Ukraine's borders, really. But um, it's kind of like a half-assed... job that the US and the UK really need to do is that like oh we respect your borders really yeah so I think final thing um, what do you think the purpose of this poll was on Zelensky's behalf why would he do it I reckon he was using it for like to bring up as an agenda from his party really into parliament so that he can get a view of what he can go to I think it was also to motivate like his base to come out because his base is young people yeah, I'm, I'm more leaning to, like, Andre's idea. I think at this point, given his that his popularity's gone down and he did come in as, like, a, a populist that everyone, you know, had high hopes for, he's kind of like, oh, I need direction. Which way do I go? And he's kind of trying to... Yeah, and, like, the whole thing when he was running for president, he'd be like, oh, we'll have a referendum for pretty much everything. So I think this is kind of, like, his 
attempt at one attempt at one really but like it was a pretty poorly managed poll like they had underage kids like running it and like you could vote multiple times and if you're phrasing it in ways that like the population doesn't understand then your results are basically invalid yeah yeah because i think it was too open um to really well it wasn't even held in like proper polling places like they were standing outside the polling station with a cardboard box handing you a clipboard saying please vote and it's like there's no privacy or anything yeah and then this whole um this whole boot, uh, this whole polling, like I mentioned before, was organized and paid for by Sluhan Rodo, Zelensky's party, really. Anyway, we'll see um, if Zelensky decides to use this as like a springboard to restart his agenda for the next year. In the news this week. Ukraine marks the 76th anniversary of its liberation from Nazi occupation. The anniversary was first commemorated in Ukraine in 2009. Ukraine accused Hungary of again interfering with its domestic affairs, this time with its local elections. On election day, Hungarian officials called for the Hungarian community in Ukraine to vote for the Hungarian Cultural Society of Zakarpatia. In response, Ukraine banned two Hungarian diplomats from entering the country. Ukraine's Constitutional Court controversially invalidated Article 366-1 of the Criminal Code, which holds public figures liable for inaccurate asset declarations. This came shortly after two of the court's judges were called out for filing inaccurate declarations this year. For the first time, Kiev appeared in the world's best cities list, ranking 87th out of 100. The list highlights Kiev as an underrated tourist hotspot with interesting churches and world-renowned museums. Let us know which stories you'd like to hear by reaching out to us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Join us next week for more Yuki Life Abroad content.